0: Section 3 of *Stupermundi*: The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. The Child of Mother Church. Part 1. On the 24th day of December in the year 1194, treachery and vengeance were abroad in the land of Sicily. Henry the Emperor, had given fair promises to the wife, the children, and the followers of the usurper Tancred, and enticed them into his power. There followed a mockery of judgment and a bloody assize. The boy William, the usurper's son, was deprived of his manhood by mutilation, blinded with hot irons, and sent with his mother and sisters to a dungeon in the Alps. The prelates and barons who had fallen into the snare of the fowler were tortured, burnt, buried alive, or more mercifully hanged. On the same day that the emperor was enjoying this barbarous revenge, a man-child was born to him in Yezi, a town of Apulia. The empress Constance, who was now forty, had been married to Henry eight years, and there had been no former child of the marriage. In anticipation, therefore, of the calumnies which might arise, she gave as much publicity to the actual entrance of the child into the world as decency and her imperial dignity would allow. This, however, was not sufficient to silence lying tongues, and the rumor was spread that the empress had passed the age of childbearing, and that the son of a butcher of Yezi had been brought into her bed and passed off as her own child. Unwilling to allow her son Frederick to be burdened with the weight of this slander, the imperial mother laid aside her pride, and before an audience of Italian matrons, underwent a humiliating ordeal to prove that she was still capable of the honors of maternity. Her brave conduct was rewarded by the virtual suppression of the calumny, though once or twice it was raised from its obscurity by the more hysterical of Frederick's enemies. The child's birth was hailed by Henry with considerable joy, and the court poet poured forth a torrent of verses on the auspicious occasion. The parents were, however, too busy with affairs of state and constant journeyings to and fro to attend to the rearing of the babe, and he was left at Foligno in the care of a noble Italian lady. Before he had attained his third birthday, his father died, and the prospects of the young Frederick assumed a precarious aspect. The electors of Germany, in spite of an oath which they had sworn to Henry, ignored the child entirely in their election of a new emperor. The crown of Sicily, as a hereditary possession, was not disputed, and he was crowned at Palermo in 1198. But the kingdom quickly relapsed into anarchy, and the royal authority was of little account." Constance realized the urgent necessity of a powerful protector who would guard the child's interests, and in spite of many misgivings, she was compelled to apply to the Pope. The present holder of that dignity, Innocent III, was the most vigorous character who had occupied the chair of St. Peter since the days of Hildebrand. He raised the power of the papacy to a height that it had never before attained and never afterwards excelled. Before his death in 1216, he had secured the complete vassalage of the king of Aragon. He had gained a signal triumph over the proud Philip Augustus of France and compelled him, after a protracted excommunication, to reinstate his divorced wife. He had become the overlord of the crafty John of England, and although the sturdy patriotism of the English barons saved that country from becoming a mere fief of the papacy, she continued for sixty years to be the treasure-house of Rome and was drained of her wealth to provide the popes with the resources for their struggle with the emperors. Innocent, therefore, seemed a powerful protector for the young Frederick, and he was perfectly willing— in his capacity as the father of orphans, to take the child under his protection. His motives, however, were very far from disinterested, and he seized the opportunity offered by the friendless position of the child and his mother to drive a very hard bargain with Constance. He revived a baseless claim which the papacy had long made to the overlordship of Sicily and Apulia, and granted them back to the empress and her son as his vassals. The lands were thus detailed in Innocent's letter, the kingdom of Sicily, the duchy of Apulia, and principality of Capua, with all its appurtenances, Naples, Salerno, and Amalfi, with their appurtenances, Marcia and the other lands beyond Marcia, to which the royal pair have a right. A legate was sent to receive the oath of fealty and homage from the new vassals of Rome. They were further required to pay a yearly tribute, and this was to be supplemented during Frederick's minority by a payment of thirty thousand golden taurins and whatever the Pope might expend in the defense of the kingdom. The crown was to surrender its claim to the nomination of bishops, who were henceforth to have the right to appeal from the king to Rome. Lastly, the clergy were to be judged by their own courts in all cases except high treason. The protection bought at so heavy a price was soon urgently needed. Constance died at the end of 1198 and bequeathed the four-year-old orphan to the guardianship of innocent. The Pope wrote a letter of consolation to his young ward wherein he said, "'God has not spared the rod. He has taken away your father and mother.' Yet he has given you a worthier father, his vicar, and a better mother, the church. In days to come, the church, as Milman remarks, was to act rather as the stepmother than the mother of Frederick. For three years after the death of Constance, the confusion in the kingdom, footnote, the kingdom of Sicily comprised the southern half of Italy, as well as the island, and footnote, was so great that Frederick was without a home. One chronicle tells us that he was passed between the houses of the burghers of Palermo, staying a week at one, a month at another, according to the means of his hosts. It was in one of these houses that he was visited by a strange and prophetic dream that seemed to foreshadow his future struggles with Rome. He was heard one night to cry out loudly in his sleep, I cannot, I cannot, and when he was questioned the next morning he replied, I seemed to be eating all the bells in the world, and I saw one great bell which I tried to swallow, but it seemed to kill me, and on that account I cried out. Meanwhile Innocent III was not idle in Frederick's cause, which through his overlordship had now become largely his own. The first enemy to be subdued was Machwald, who had followed Henry from Germany into the south, and had afterwards, with many other German barons, betrayed an active reluctance to leave these fair lands, which afforded so tempting a prey to the adventurer. On the death of Constance, he had claimed the regency of Sicily and gathered around his banner all the German intruders. Innocent excommunicated him and his robbers in vain. The Saracens of the mountains allied themselves with Markwald in the cause of anarchy and the Pope was compelled to send an army into Sicily. In 1200 the two forces met before the walls of Palermo, from which the child Frederick was an anxious spectator of the bloody battle that ensued. Victory fell to the Pope's general and was followed by a further success. Two years later the death of Markwald freed Frederick from one of his enemies. The young king was now installed in the royal palace of Palermo and his private education commenced. The archbishop of Taranto and the notary, John of Trajeto, were entrusted with the general supervision of his studies. Strangely enough, Muslim scholars were appointed to instruct him in various branches of learning. They were undoubtedly the most learned men of the day, but it is some cause for wonder that the education of the Pope's ward should have been entrusted during his tender years to the care of infidels. The result was that Frederick's mind was so broadened that he was unable in future years to adopt the prevailing attitude of narrow and fanatical hatred toward the followers of Islam that was essential to the orthodox and complete Christian. The young king had now a royal palace for home and servants around him, but in other respects, his position was still unhappy. He was king only in name and was desperately poor. He was surrounded by intrigue. His person was the objective of every ambitious adventurer who sought to assume the title of regent. His dominions were devastated by anarchy. It would be tedious to relate all the conflicts which raged through Sicily and southern Italy for several years but some idea of the miserable state of affairs by which the child was surrounded may be gathered from this quaint and pathetic letter, which he addressed to the kings of Europe in his tenth or eleventh year. To all the kings of the world, and to all the princes of the universe, from the innocent boy, king of Sicily, called Frederick, greeting in God's name. Assemble yourselves, ye nations, Draw nigh, ye kings, hasten hither, ye princes, and see if any sorrow be like unto my sorrow. My parents died, ere I could know their caresses. I did not deserve to see their faces, and I, like a gentle lamb among wolves, fell into slavish dependence upon men of various tribes and tongues. I, the offspring of so august a union, was handed over to servants of all sorts, who presume to draw lots for my garments and for my royal person. Germans, Tuscans, Sicilians, barbarians conspired to worry me. My daily bread, my drink, my freedom are all measured out to me in scanty proportion. No king am I. I am ruled instead of ruling. I beg favors instead of granting them. My subjects are silly and quarrelsome." Since, therefore, my Redeemer liveth and can raise me out of such a pool of misery, again and again I beseech you, O ye princes of the earth, to aid me to withstand slaves, to set free the son of Caesar, to raise up the crown of my kingdom, and to gather together again the scattered people. Unless you avenge me, you yourselves will fall into like dangers. End of Section 3